You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 87. On today's show, I chat with Broadway prop supervisor Bust Bickley. We discuss how he finds work, what makes him a good Broadway prop supervisor, who he uses as an accountant, and what his financial retirement plan is. We also discuss life insurance, the financial benefit of having a partner, what to do if you want to be a prop supervisor in New York City, and we wrap up talking about what charities Bust gives to. While you listen to this episode, if you wouldn't mind slinking on over to Apple or Spotify and leaving Artistic Finance a rating, especially if it's a five-star rating, but follow your heart. Thanks immensely to the patrons who support Artistic Finance on Patreon. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome Prop Supervisor Bust Bickley. Welcome, Bust. Hi, nice to be here. I could say specifically a Broadway prop supervisor. You sure could. Because you do a lot of that. I, I, I do. I do. I would say all of that. <laughs> We're recording this January 21st, 2022. Omicron is raging. It's really cold. It's really cold outside. It's insanely cold. What is going on Broadway? Girl from the North Country is closing. There's, there's lots of things that are like, it's a weird time because... It was all like, we're reopened. It's great. Oh, wait, as soon as we were, it's not anymore. And now there's like a bunch of back and forth with the unions because some shows are saying they're taking a break. And then there's like the talks of what is it when you take a hiatus versus you have closed and have reopened? It's a very interesting financial discussion because some of these shows um, like Doubtfire or Mockingbird or Girl from the North Country, they've said that they're going to close and they're going to reopen. If it's in the same season, will this be a revival of Mrs. Doubtfire? I think, like, technically, it would be a revival. Like, seriously. It's just, a, I, in my time on Broadway, nothing like this has ever happened before. You know, COVID's never happened before. Uh, it's an interesting time. It's very stressful. There's a lot of COVID testing. I get tested every day. I take about three tests a day, three different ones. Different shows require different tests at different times. But Broadway has set up big testing centers in Times Square. There are like three or four of them. And you do lots of COVID testing. You walk in, you scan your QR code for your different show. You select all these things. You fill out all this paperwork. It's odd the things that you get used to quickly. All right, I won't complain because I do like three a week, but that's not three a day. <laughs> it's two or three a day, depending on what, uh, what shows I pop in on. It's It's gotten more standardized, believe it or not. Earlier, the shows weren't talking to each other at all. So each show had a different thing. And so you needed to test with however that show was testing. And that was like 12 tests a week or something. Someone's making a lot of money off these tests. <laughs> yeah, no joke. All right. Well, that's where we are in space and time for anybody listening in the future. So your creative and financial personalities here. First thing, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, my name's Bust. Bickley. I am a I'm a prop super, supervisor on Broadway. I live in Queens. I've been working on Broadway since 2008. I've opened like 50 something Broadway shows. Currently working on uh, Michael Jackson. The new MJ musical is in late previews right now. I just loaded in the rehearsal for the Moulin Rouge tour 
reopened Moulin Rouge on Broadway. I do the Tina show about Tina Turner. I do two Dear Van Hansen's. I did a Broadway and the national tour. We just redid Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. That was two shows and made them into one. Got a Harry Potter running on Broadway and in um, San Francisco. The one in San Francisco is still in previews. And I'm working on a new uh, musical version of Some Like It Hot that is in a second lab coming up next week. God, oh man, that, that was so much. Where, where is the tour uh, for Moulin Rouge? Where is that teching? I'm in Chicago at the Nederlander Theater, formerly the Oriental Theater. We loaded in rehearsal last week. We start rehearsals with actors on Monday. We'll be in New York for six weeks rehearsing, and then we'll go to Chicago, and I'll be there for about a month um, getting the show up on its feet. I, don't, I mean, I create the show. I don't, I don't um, run the show. I'll come home for a while, and then I will go back to Chicago the first time it gets packed up in the trucks, and then for the first move. That's pretty typical for a, for a tour that, you, that I would go and be there for the first move just to make sure that everything does the thing I, I, it was designed to do. Every, on a tour, it's all about does it fit in the truck, and that is when you find out if it fits in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> but if it doesn't, do you just cut it? Sometimes. Sometimes you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, Harry Potter, cutting it from two shows to one, did, all, did that cut any props, or are all the props the exact same? Um, cut a lot of props, and there are also some new props for the show. If you want me to tell you more specifically, I would have to break my non-disclosure agreement. Okay, then I don't want that. Well, I do want that, but <laughs> for your sake, I don't want that. Um, also, is the San Francisco and the Broadway, are they both one show now? They are both one show. All of the North American productions will be one show. There's a Toronto production that's happening later this year. And Toronto, San Francisco, and Broadway will all be the one show version. And the international, the original London production Australia, Germany, Japan, and there's another one I can't remember, are all going to be two shows, continue to be two shows. Okay. You said you're in Queens. Can you describe all your other demographics for us? I am a man. I identify as a man. I am a a he, him, abused. I am 37 years old. I am what people call a white boy. I am married and I have a BA. I have a liberal arts, theater arts degree. I went to Drew University in New Jersey. I do not have a master's degree. Did you say Drew University? Drew University. Part of it? I don't think I know it. <laughs> should, should I know it? <laughs> should I know it is a great question. <laughs> like I, I, I don't, have, don't you pe- dare edit that out. <laughs> should I know Like have people been saying they're from Drew University like a ton of times and I just haven't picked up on it until now? There are a few of us that work in the, that work in the showbiz that went to Drew. Um, Pat Goodwin is a big... Uh, casting agent at the Delcy agency. We went to college together. Uh, there are a few stage managers that are working that went, that went to Drew. I had a great time at Drew. It was, it was exactly what I needed at the time. And I'm, Give me an exact geographic location in, in Jersey. It's in Madison, Madison, New Jersey. Madison. It's in like okay. North New Jersey near like um, Morristown, Short Hills, that area. Now that I've heard it, I'm going to see it everywhere. I'm sure of it. Have you ever heard of the, um, the New Jersey Shakespeare Theater? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that's on, the Drew's, on Drew's campus. All right. Okay. So I know it. I just didn't realize until right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what is a live event that you like to experience or a piece of art that you like? I, when I read this earlier, I was talking to my husband recently and I said, I'm getting all these, all these free ticket offers to Broadway shows. And I'm like, I don't want to go to any of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, do accountants, like when they're not accounting, go and watch other people do accounting? <laughs> no, it's like, I've reached the point where I'm like, I don't even want to see a play if I don't have to be, if I don't have to be in the room with it. 
is that terrible? But that's not. No, that's... no, no. I would say that's actually a common theme for for the people that are on the offstage side of things. I really, I'm at the point where I cannot watch something and escape. Like it, it is, I look at it and I see, man, that was a lot of emails. <laughs> you really like that trick right there. That was hard. You had to, you had to do this and that and that. Like I can't. It's hard to take myself out of it. Well, do you? Are there any other live events like I don't know sports or something? <laughs> it's not sports. <laughs> um, or, or wait, maybe maybe piece of art is better. <laughs> um, I love going to museums. I love like um, if I truly have a day off, which is um, not all that common. Like taking myself to like a museum date and like not with anyone else and just like walking around. I really I really enjoy that. Interesting. Okay, if you could only go to one more museum before you die, which one would it be? What is that? really funky museum that's in boston that was that crazy lady's house oh the isabella the stewart gardner, gardner museum. museum yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a crazy museum i really like that place my assistant chris went to college in boston and, and we teched moulin rouge out there and he was like oh, we get to go to the to the gardner museum and i was like what and, and he was like she was like this crazy person she had all this money and she had all these famous friends and like the museum is crazy all of these kind of relics and things that she has brought together. And there was that crazy, did you watch the the documentary about like the art thief? And it was really good. I really, I really like that place. I actually heard the podcast. I can't remember the name of the podcast, but it's like a six part mini series about it. And they still don't know. They still don't know. And like every few years, it's like, oh, maybe we're, we have a clue. And now it's like over 30 years ago. Yeah. So they're never going to solve this unless somebody stumbles across them. No, it's crazy. They're never going to solve it. I also love the the Museum of the Moving Image that's out in Queens. Have you ever been there? I've never been there, no. Worth your time. And, and I mean, nothing wrong with the Met. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first person to say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, financial personality here. Are you good or bad with money? I think I'm pretty good with money. My My parents are very good with money. I don't think I'm as good as they are, but they were very good role models when it came to, to money. I think the key to being good to money is not liking to spend a lot of money. <laughs> and, so uh, you don't like to spend a lot of money. <laughs> I, I like to. I like. I like the freedom of low overhead. There's a lot of freedom and not owing a lot of people a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Well, my first question for you was going to be: Growing up, did you have a good financial example? Oh, look at there. Look at look at your transitions. So well <laughs> what was it about your parents that made them so good? They both had good jobs, which it's easy to, when you have a good job, it's easier to be good with money than when you don't have a good job. But it was never, it was always about saving. It wasn't, it wasn't about having like a new car all of the time. There was no like keeping up with the Joneses or limited keeping up with the Joneses. And I feel like we spent more money on experiences than on stuff. And I feel like people talk about that a lot now and maybe, uh, but they were doing that before it was cool. And, and, and they've always been saving. My, my dad had a job, like a government job, and was always like, how much are you putting away was always important. Whenever I had a, a, a job opportunity, he, he would always say, you know, if you can do the direct deposit, you can put so much into your savings. And it's best if it goes away before you even know it was there. <laughs> and I thought, and, and that's, a, that's a, a good way to live. That's amazing. Did he even do that before, like when you had school jobs or something? Did you do that then, or was it once you got out of college? Um, you're like that. You're like there wasn't direct deposit then. <laughs> there wasn't direct deposit. Then. I don't think there was direct deposit then. And I've always kind of had theater jobs. I haven't. I've been lucky that I haven't had like survival jobs after since college. But I've always been always tried to save. 
with your parents, were they like so good that they had like the, a college fund for you? Like, did they help pay for your college or was that on you? My, my parents totally paid for my college. That is a part of why I can be financially free now because I did not have any student loans coming out of college. Drew is really expensive. I don't know why, why, why it is. You, you didn't even think it existed. <laughs> <laughs> oops, oops, uh, awkward. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care at all. And um, it's too expensive. It never crossed my radar. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly. Have <laughs> um, but I did have a a good um, like financial aid help situation, and that and that totally helped. Whenever I speak with college students about props or production, anything, I'm on like. I do lots of talking with like first year theater tech classes. I, I always say, don't go to graduate school because you don't know what to do and then have to pay back all of those loans. Like whatever you can do to not have student loans will make your life better. Especially in the theater, there's so many early profession jobs. It's, it's getting better. But especially when I first graduated, like the early profession jobs don't pay you anything. At least for my generation, those jobs were the jobs where you met the people that helped you later. When you can take jobs for professionally, this is gonna help me when it might not help me financially, in the long term, it will help you. Having that flexibility really helped me to get where I am. Okay, so when you started your career, what did your finances look like then? Like when you got out of college and you started working? I graduated without student loans. I met my husband in college and he graduated with lots of student loans. Fun. <laughs> my dad has made a joke like I've worked so hard so that abuse doesn't have to have student loans. It's just and, and then and then this this other one shows up. And, <laughs> but coming out of out of undergraduate, I didn't have any debts. And so I was really just like looking for like what's I applied to graduate school after college and I didn't get in. And uh, I'm so glad that I didn't. And if I had had those debts, I probably wouldn't be where I am now. I don't mean to be like ragging on grad school for a lot of people. It's the right thing, but for a lot of people, it's just what you do. Cause you people have told you it's what you need to do. Uh, and that is not always the case. It's mostly a money-making it's a money-making thing for the university. <laughs> I graduated in 07. And so like the economy totally crashed as soon as I graduated from college. And a lot of people who in, in my class, like went to law school who probably wouldn't have otherwise, and not even in theater, but in other things, just like, maybe I'll just go get my master's since no one's hiring. And then it's like, financially, they're still paying off things and they're not working in those fields and whatever you can do to stay flexible. I am all about low overhead. That's what we're going to take away from this episode. Low overhead. That is, yeah, buspically, low overhead. Low overhead. <laughs> there is power in it. Um, okay. But you said you met your husband when you were in college. So did you guys move to New York together? Um, my first job was at the Westport Playhouse in Connecticut. and I. Um, I graduated from college thinking I wanted to be a set designer. I knew that I didn't have like the coming from a small liberal arts school. I knew I didn't have the skills to say, and now I am a professional set designer. Uh, then I thought I'll go to grad school. And then I didn't get into grad school. And then I was looking for summer jobs and I got a job as a prop master at a summer stock theater. Cause I thought I have the skills like at liberal arts schools, you have to do a little bit of everything. And props is just a little bit of everything. And I was like, I bet I could do that. Uh, and it, it went well. And then while I was working for that summer, I saw that the Westport Playhouse was looking for a prop master, like a full-time job. I was crazy lucky. And I got hired to be the prop master at the Westport Playhouse full-time, which is like a major regional theater, totally unqualified for that job. <laughs> we lived in Stamford, Connecticut, and Westport is just north of Stamford. 
And then my husband's a college professor and he teaches at Bloomfield College. And so then he would drive to Bloomfield from Stanford. And that's where we lived for the first two years after college. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, do you worry or think about money on a daily basis? I mean, I am cognizant of money on a daily basis, but I, I am not worried like, am I gonna pay for my bills? Because I know that I have kept my overhead low and I, and I know that I'll have enough money to pay my bills. Okay, props. So when I think of a props supervisor, I'm thinking, this is what I think your job is. You just buy things. Like you're just constantly buying things and dealing with budgets. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm dealing with that. And I'm in charge of millions of dollars. And so budgets, like not my personal budgets, but my business budgets are a, a day-to-day situation. And it's not just buying, but it's like everything is custom. Uh, what shops I'm working with, knowing how much, like dealing with inflation these shows that have been delayed, like the budgets were approved before the shutdown, lumber and steel is 40% more than it was 18 months ago. And so like, I can't do these things for the numbers that are on here and figuring that out, it's been a thing. Budgeting in my professional life is a much more of, of my anxiety than in my personal life. Like I manage a half million dollars worth of props in a, in a huge musical, making sure that all those numbers line up um, is a full-time job. Half of your day must just be in front of a spreadsheet, adding and subtracting. <laughs> um, I'd say learning to budget is kind of, is what separates like a good prop master from a like a lot of people know how to make beautiful things and know what pretty looks like and knows how to source stuff. But giving management the when you've done enough shows where you can see what people want and know how much it costs and actually do it for that much that's when you get hired a lot more. <laughs> when, when, when management trusts you that Buse could do it for that much money. Or if Buse says he needs more money, he really does. It's not just that he's blown it on other stuff. Having people trust you that this is, that's actually how much that's going to cost. All right, everybody who works in props, rewind 30 seconds and listen to Buse again there. <laughs> I feel like that was like a golden nugget for like, this is how you get hired to do props. No, that's just true. And, and props is totally left-brained and totally right-brained. Like I need to be able to talk to choreographers and dancers and directors and designers. And they say things like, what if this was more like, <sighs> like I have to understand like what that means. But then I also have to know what's the freight elevator schedule and what are all of the union rules? What are, I need to know the trucking schedules. I have to scheduling casual labor in and out. And it's about the organization of it and the supervision of it is equally important as the creativity. And if one of those gets out of whack, especially at this level with this much money and these high stakes, like quick calendars, like you, you have to have those, you have to have the creativity and the organization at, the same. All right. I have to ask, what's what's the highest budget you've ever had on a show? Just for props or like props plus illusions plus other things. Like like because then there's like can I say both? Pyro is like a million dollars for one show. Okay. You don't have to tell me anything. I'm just gonna assume that's Harry Potter was a million. Maybe a couple of them have been a million dollars. Okay. All right, that's quite a bit. But that's on like a huge shows that have lots of development and then would go on to have multiple productions. Like that's that's not just a making this show that's going to run this long. That's like developing a new idea that will be a new property. Like that takes a lot of money. Yeah, because I assume like the first show is going to have the huge budget. And then once you know what the props are, then it's like, okay, we just replicate that for the tour. Remounts or you have to switch to a different brain that's like, all right, this is what 
how can we recreate this in a different circumstance? Like if it's a tour, how can I break this down so that it doesn't break and will fit into the trucks and fit into these carts? And if the turnaround needs to be in this amount of time, how can we put it together in that way? So it's like, you know what the end result needs to closely resemble and like, how can you get it there? It's always nice when it's like a direct remount and it's just like, I know, I know what that is. I can do that again. <laughs> but like, the, I enjoy the development of a new idea. Uh, I like working on a, a new, a big new musical where I get to work on the early labs, where it's just like, they're just ideas. We're adding and cutting songs where we can fully work out an idea and realize, you know what? That sucked. We're totally going to scrap that and try something else. And then getting that to rehearsals into an opening and then multiple productions. Like I like to see something through the whole the whole range that's kind of what i like the best and how much work is the lab part of it because i'm thinking when it's like fully produced on its feet that's when all the big prop stuff is happening is a lot happening in the labs it depends um on certain shows like when we did spongebob i came on to spongebob during the second lab not the first one so they'd already figured some things out if the props are the show then you are developing that in the lab i'm working on developing the this new some like it hot musical and we have different prop scenery elements that are in the rehearsal space because it's like a, a new idea and you have to fully work it out. A lot of shows don't have out of town tryouts anymore um, because of money reasons. And so when you are in rehearsal for Broadway, there's not time for huge new discoveries. There's literally not time. So you have to have fully thought out your idea before you get into rehearsal space. On a Broadway musical, whatever I can do to have the show done for first rehearsal as far as I can, for what I know, that's where you need to be. You need to have all the time available to solve the problems that you don't know yet. If you know the problems, you should already have solved them by the time you start first rehearsal. You're good professionally with your budgets. On a personal level, have you ever used a budget in your life? I didn't have like a for real like Excel sheet, but I do think about like where things are. But I don't have like, because some people have like a ding, 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 Excel sheet and, and I, I am not the one. Yeah, your method seems to be low overhead. I know what that is. Everything else is going to work itself out. For the most part. And I know that I work enough as hard and generally consistent sans pandemics that I work. I'm going to be okay. Okay, so we established when you started out, you didn't have any student loans, though your husband... Do you have any other debts like medical debt, credit card debt, or a mortgage? Um, I do not have any of those things. And that is a blessed life, I know. Uh, we do not own a house. Uh, we live in a rent-stabilized apartment that is very small. Uh, we lucked into it. It's in like an old stinky road, row, <laughs> row house in Queens. A lot of our friends have gone on to purchase houses and apartments or just move into larger places. Like we live in a, we share a 630 square foot apartment. The rent is very good. I'm not looking to move until it burns down or something. I would say they're going to take our dead gay bodies out of this apartment one day. <laughs> the rent is, is so reasonable for where we live. Uh, I can be in Times Square in like 20 minutes for work. So we, we do not have a mortgage. Before the, the shutdown, I had really wanted to have a country house, like to have someplace like up Metro North somewhere on the river or something. We had really thought about that in a real way. A couple of years ago, we have actually like looked at places. Post-pandemic, I don't want that. When I have time off, like I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to go the places. I had so many friends from college who like bought houses. And then like recently they had all that flooding and like they lost everything and they didn't have flood insurance. And like that kind of thing just terrifies me. I just like keeping it light. <laughs> 
Low overhead. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Low overhead. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, Nicole and I are the same way. Like every once in a while, we're like, "Oh, should we try to buy a place?" Blah blah blah. But we would also rather just like travel and experience things and not tie up a bunch of money. Right. Life is short. Life is short. And in New York, unlike most places, like buying can be more expensive than renting. In New York, the regime fees, like the weekly maintenance is more than what our rent is. And so like if we were buying a house that is an investment, we would still be paying our rent at our house for nothing. You don't get like, that's not your investment, the maintenance that you're paying towards. So like we would buy a house and still be paying our rent, but not having our apartment. <laughs> it seems backwards, but. that That's also like an amazing thing, like city living versus other living. Right? A lot is. of people just have in their brain like, oh, a mortgage is just the same as rent. So why don't you get a mortgage? In New York, that's not true. Yeah, but it's not exactly. I know people who have like, these are like nice apartments, but like three and four, $5,000 in maintenance fees that you don't get back. I don't have that kind of money where I can just throw that away. We had a car for a while. Obviously, when we, when we lived in Connecticut, we had a car. We had a car the first year in New York. And I love not having a car, not having insurance, not having a car payment. And then when I have for work, whenever I need to transport things, if it's not for a show budget, then like that is a business expense that is like easily written off. And then I don't have to worry about like the parking of a car when it's snowing and our car got hit all the time on the street and like remembering where it is. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, maybe we should get a car again so we can just like go wherever we need to go. And I'm so glad that we didn't. Although some people made a pile of money on buying cars. I know someone very close to me who I will not name who bought a new, very nice pickup truck, like a Chevy Silverado, like a jazzed up one. A year and a half after buying it, the dealership called them to see if they could buy it back to sell as a used car because of all of the computer chip issues. And they bought it back for $7,000 more than he paid for it. Oh my gosh. That's true. That's because of all of the, um, all of the supply chain issues. People buy trucks. Like if you have a, a job where you have to have a truck and there are no trucks available, supply and demand, the truck is worth so much more money than it was beforehand. So he like had a truck for a year and a half and then made $7,000 on the transaction. Wow. Cuckoo bananas. I mean, the car, Nicole and I have run into people recently and they're like, oh, you don't have a car? And they're like shocked by this, you know? City people? No, not city people. Oh, please. Oh, okay. yeah, you know, no, no. like we're from Missouri. Yeah. So like you go back and you... Right. Br Brandon and I are both from South Carolina. Okay. And then so we give the answer like, oh, well, we have a Zipcar account. And that seems to like calm everybody down. They're like, oh, okay. But we haven't used a Zipcar for like 18 months. Oh, we, I use Zipcar all the time, mostly for work stuff. But uh, I love a Zipcar. I also just like like cars and I like that on Zipcar, like I can just like, maybe I want to drive a BMW today. <laughs> or like in, in the city, they have like fancy cars. And if you do it last minute, sometimes BMW is your only choice. It's your only choice. And also sometimes it's not more expensive than the Corolla. True. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. So what is the best financial decision that you've ever made? When, when I had money, after I had a couple of hits, I was able to pay off Brandon's student loans and getting Brandon's loans paid off as quickly as we could. Like we had enough money that we could have put a down payment on something. Like if we had had, if we'd had to be paying off those loans when I didn't work for a year and a half with the shutdown, like we would have had a very different pandemic. I had, I had a really good couple of years and over like four years we paid it off. I paid it off. Like by the time you guys were graduated, it was four years after that you 
four years after I was working on Broadway, I paid it off. And how many years was that after school? <laughs> Eight years after he graduated from, from grad school. So he was getting his doctorate and I was getting my undergraduate degree. So he had um, some, some loans after that. And, and he has a master's degree. So like he had a lot of, he had a lot of degrees. So he had a lot of, he'd paid a lot of money. Well, eight, eight years is actually like pretty good. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no, no. It, I was real proud of us. Um, but if we weren't able to do that during the pandemic, especially when all of a sudden you don't have any income, it, it, it would have been a problem. Yeah. Okay. All right. So paying off the loans, best financial decision. So then your work as a prop supervisor, how do you get jobs? I have a good relationship with some production managers that work on Broadway. Broadway is a very small community. There are very few prop masters in New York. I would say the majority of the Broadway season, there are like six different prop masters because it's a very hard job that requires a very specific group of skills <laughs> and not a lot of people do it and, and fewer people do it well. Once you have had like a, a hit, then it went well and you made people happy and you were known to be able to do that. It's pretty easy to get a lot of work. But I have a good relationship with production managers, with um, several general management companies, and mostly with scenic designers. Like we met through John Lee Beatty, and John Lee is a longtime friend and collaborator on many shows. I counted one time, and we we done like 40 different things together. A lot of them were encores, so that happens really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but we did, but we did a lot of, we've, we've done a lot of things together. The set designer, prop master, um, relationship is very tight. And once you find a relationship like that, that works, you want to keep, keep doing that. It takes a while. And like, there's certain set designers that very few, but a few that I've worked with, and I'm like, Oh, we don't talk the same. This isn't a great fit. We'll figure this out for now. But like, we don't have to do this anymore after we're done. But then when you, when you find the relationships where it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And we can really snap off ideas and you understand what it means. You have a shorthand with each other. The stakes are high. There's no time. There's limited money. When that fuel is all working, you're like, oh, okay, that's my guy. And we'll keep calling them. <laughs> you, get, you get in a groove. Is it the set designer that's asking for you or the production manager? It depends on the production. Um, it, the set designer w would always have to approve, but sometimes I've gotten jobs because, you know, if a show comes over from England and the English designer doesn't really have a prop person that they usually use, I would be recommended by the production manager or the general manager, but it's like, it's, it's all about relationships. Okay. And, and in your prop supervision work, is it you that's getting the paychecks? Are you just working as a sole proprietor? I did for a very long time. And then years ago we started an LLC mad props, creative studio, get into it. Uh, and so I get billing through my um, through our company. It's a partnership with my husband. So anytime you're working on a show, the paycheck is going to Mad Props LLC. Correct. Does that mean, does that mean, is all your income 1099 or is some of this W-2? It's a combination. I get, I usually get like 16 uh, in like a normal year. I get about, I'm not sure why 16 is the number, but for <laughs> so many years, it's always like at the end of the year, you get your, your 1099s and W-2s back. And it's like, 16. Hmm. That's the, that just keeps coming back. If you've, if you've worked like a full year, it's about 16 jobs, but it's a combination of both. Since you are getting some 1099, do you pay quarterly taxes? I do pay quarterly taxes. All right. Noted. And do you file them yourself? Yes. Oh, no. Like, do I have an accountant? Yeah. Yeah. No, I have an accountant. Definitely have an accountant. Oh, okay. So you file the quarterly ones. I, I thought you meant like, like I'd write the checks. <laughs> like I write the checks, I put them in the mail. 
Brandon and I, since we moved to New York, have used an accountant. And there are a few accountants that do like Broadway taxes. And when I go to, when we go to do our taxes, you see the people you know from work in the lobby. Our accountant always has some sort of good Broadway gossip when we get there. (laughs) (laughs) Questions to ask. May I ask who, who your accountant is? Don Robinson. Don Robinson. He does a lot of Broadway taxes. All right. So now your retirement do you have a retirement plan? I have. Um, I'm. I'm ACT. I'm. Uh, that's my union affiliation, and I have an annuity and a pension through my union, and I have a old 401k from my old Westport days, and then I do IRAs myself at the end of the year. All right. What kind of IRAs? A Roth IRA and the. A regular IRA? What's it called? (laughs) (laughs) There's traditional and there's Roth. Traditional, sorry. Traditional IRAs. So wait, wait, you do both? In our earlier lives, we had Roth IRAs, and then now we do the um, traditional traditional IRAs. Is that because you graduated out of the Roth? Yes. Yeah, okay. Because I'm making money moves. Also, your your old 401k, is it just sitting there? You don't add anything to it, right? It's just sitting there until you retire? It's just sitting there. And then the annuity and the pension you'll get whenever you officially retire, I guess, or reach that age. Correct. Okay, cool. Okay, random question that I haven't really thought much, except that we recently did an episode on Dave Ramsey, and we talked about life insurance. Do you have life insurance? We both have life insurance. My husband's a college professor, and so we have TIAA CREF because he's a school teacher. We both bought life insurance for each other early on, like a 20-year plan. It's like It was very inexpensive, and if something happened, it would be a great cushion. It made a lot of sense to us at the time. And some people are like, why do you have life insurance? Like you don't have kids, like you don't have like a big mortgage to write off, but it makes me feel safer. And I think that it makes him feel safer also. And it was, it's not that expensive. It seems like something that would be like a no brainer. Like if you have that money, like why wouldn't you do that? Why? Well, yeah. Cause I I'm thinking about it. Cause Nicole and I, we have like this tiny, like through her work, we have like a little plan. Recently I've been like, oh, we should, I've just heard enough stories and people talking about it that I'm like, oh, maybe we should actually it would make us feel better. If you're healthy and like relatively young, like it's not the amount that we pay and the amount that we would get if one of us dies seems like a no-brainer situation. Yeah. Okay. I need to do a whole episode on that because I'm I'm thinking about it. I mean, I haven't died yet and and thank God he hasn't either, but it it just the idea of it makes me feel better than than if we didn't have it. Absolutely. Peace of mind is totally worth a lot. Yeah, to- yeah, peace of mind. Um, do you have a health savings account? We have had a health savings account with it, with his work and it has always lost us money and we don't do it anymore. At the end of the year, we'd have all this money that we could spend. We've done some real stupid things trying to get rid of that money by the end of the year because we were going to lose it if we didn't. We lost money every year that we did it. But I mean, that's a blessed life that you weren't sick and you didn't have to go to the doctor. And if we had needed it, we would have been glad it was there. But it 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 was not good for us. Okay, we have a little one, again, through Nicole's work, like part of her benefits package. And actually, when I say we, I mean, it's just hers. I don't have one. But it rolls over. Ours did not roll over. Yeah, that's awful. That's like people who like have vacation days or something that expire. Right, that don't roll over. It's like, yeah. what a waste. That's yeah. ridiculous. Stop, no. Everyone stop that. It's totally unfair. I agree. I thought it was totally unfair. Um, <laughs> so outside of all your retirement pension, all that setup stuff, do you guys invest? I don't. I'd like to get into it. I first want to get my savings back to where it was before the pandemic. I like to have a lot of cash on hand in case, you know, there's another global deadly pandemic. I feel like a lot of my financial, like my financial brain comes from my experience. And since 
I was in high school, about every decade, something terrible happens. 9-11 happened when I was in high school. When I graduated from college, the financial market just fell off. And then this pandemic happened. And I have no reason to believe that every 10 years, the shit's going to hit the fan. And so I kind of live my life knowing, like, don't get too comfortable because it's going to get it's going to get bad again. And I, I want to like have cash on hand for when, when that happens. That might be a depressed way of think, thinking, but that's, to- but that's totally what I think. The way the world is going, it's just going to get worse. Well, well, for me, uh, talking with so many artists throughout this whole show, I've been sort of surprised by how like safe and secure people want their investments. Like a lot of artists want it in cash. And it's sort of obvious, like you want it available when you need it. I'm not messing with Bitcoins. Yeah. <laughs> um, our previous episode, the one before this, is about bond investing. And I talked with like what I call a real person with a real job. <laughs> They're not in theater, not in entertainment, but all their investments are in bonds, which is like the safe and secure and virtually it's cash. I've always like avoided bonds and I've always just been like, oh, whatever gives the highest return is what I want. And now I'm like, oh, there actually is like a lot of merit and tax savings to bond investing, which is sort of like cash investing. I'm not going to advise you anything, but you could look into that. I'll send you the episode when it comes out. (laughs) I might look into that. Thanks. I appreciate that. I assume different jobs pay you different amounts of money. Um, Which one has been the most financially lucrative? Multiple productions of the same show. Whenever you have a hit where it has a tour and like maybe a a production in Toronto. It's when you see something through, that's really when it's the most financially. Um, if it's a hit and then there are multiple productions, that's, that's when you make the most money. And, and when a show makes money, I, I, get, I get a production weekly from a show. So like as it's running and often in contracts, I will say, you know, I'll get paid this much a week. And then for once the show opens and then when the show recoups 100%, that means the investors have made all their money back. I get increased this much. And then when the show recoups 200%, I get this much. So if you have a show that like a, like a hit that's been running for a long time, then you, you literally get more money if, it's, if it runs for a long, long time. And people, and I mean, shows can run and not recoup, but if, it, if it's recouped and made money for its um, producers. And and is that um, is that a royalty or is that because you're you have to fix things? That is not a royalty because I I am not I am not technically a designer of the show, but that is for the maintaining of a show. Every day we get a a performance report. I read those re- reports and see what has happened. Some shows have a lot of things that could go wrong. I can't imagine what I'm talking about. If there's like a lot of magic in the show and there are lots of moving parts and whiz bangs and a lot of things that require a lot of upkeep yeah it's it's not it's it's a job keeping a broadway show running is very hard it happens eight times a week and in the dark (laughs) and things things break and props have a shelf life after a certain certain amount of time they give up and on a show that you built everything starts to give up at the same time and you got to keep it all fresh and keep it all strong and so just as an example, so is it like you're getting $2,000, your LLC gets $2,000 and then you maintain everything within that? Or is it like you're getting the $2,000 to you every week and then whatever fixes, you have to pay for all that out of a separate budget? I get paid, I get paid myself for taking care of the show. That The fee that I get paid is not the money to fix things. 
we need 12 more cups. That, that fee does not pay for the cups. It pays for me to care about getting the cups and the time to, and the time to, to take care of it. It pays me. It's not like the stuff. Got it. Okay. I'm going to wrap up here a little bit. What advice could you give somebody else that maybe is starting out in a career of prop supervising or just general financial advice for anybody starting out? In the theater, so many, and this is changing. I I'd, I'd called this a little bit earlier, but learning to live on not very much. And if you're just moving to New York, finding someone that you know you can live with well, like as a roommate. And, and, uh, something I should have said earlier, I always had a husband, like, or, or we were always married, but like, I always had a partner and we were always sharing rent. And in New York, relationships accelerate in New York because you don't want to pay two rents. <laughs> like you will, <laughs> you will move in together before it's time because it's so expensive to live here. But like knowing someone that you can live with to, to split expenses and so that you can take on those jobs that are professionally beneficial, but might not be financially beneficial early on. And also uh, in the theater, people are always looking for like a, like a backup job or a um, survival job. <laughs> when I speak to college students, they're like, well, a survival job, like, is there a job I can do that was in the theater? And I said, people are always looking for people who can ventilate a wig or maintain wigs. There are not enough people in America that do that. And people who can uh, know how to grant writers, people are always looking for grant writers. And like, if you want to work in the, if you, if you, if you want a pivot job that is still in the theater, those are two things that you can always find work doing. All right. Noted grant writing and wig maintaining. Wig ventilating. Ventilating. Wig ventilating. That's when you like make a wig. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. So this is a new question. I've never even asked anybody before, but people keep asking me this for some reason. Do you give to charity? Uh, we do. Every year at the end of the year, we give a lot of money at December 30th and 23, 23 hours, <laughs> there are like six or seven different charities that we give to every year. And the whole, whole world would be better if everyone who had, who had more than they do. If you have more, you should give more. I've had a, a, a good couple of years. I give to my college. I give to um, smaller theaters where I've worked before. I uh, give to a um, people who pay bail bonds on for people who are in jail who who can't pay the bond fund bond project the bond project we always give money to but there there are several that we give to um i give to our to like our local community we give to the hunters point conservancy which deals with like the parks in our neighborhood like the things that we are directly involved with wow abused you're you're all over the place nice i mean i don't give them that much money <laughs> but still but still yeah Every, every, every little bit helps. Um, all right. I bet you don't have an answer to this one. Is there a book or a resource that you can recommend that has helped you with finance or the business side of your career? I, um, Susie Orman, whatever she says. <laughs> <laughs> Although she's retired. We need a new person to what? refer to. We need to. a new Susie Orman. Yeah. So entertaining. All right. If you're listening, um, there's a niche available that Susie Orman has left. Yeah. So you can fill that. Yeah. Sassy haircut, very bright blazer. <laughs> um, okay. So if anybody's listening and they want to become a prop supervisor, is there any encouragement that you can give them? Or yes, should they run away from it? <laughs> if you're an undergraduate, Doing the other jobs will teach you more about props. I directed, I acted, I had my own work produced. I did lighting design. I did costume design. Working in the other mediums, uh, in the other medium, in the other departments, really helps 
to get your mind around props because props are so interdepartmental. That was really useful to me. If you want to do props in New York City, you learn it by doing props in New York City. Doing props someplace else teaches you how to do them there. It's a very specific animal getting around New York, dealing. We have very specific problems that are only here. <laughs> and if this is where you want to be, then you need to be here to, to learn how to do that. Um, and also think, and like your attitude, your personality, like who you are at work is as important as your work. There is stress is so high. We work such long hours, especially during tech. Like we could have weeks of 10 out of 12s. They're trying to get away from that now. But I, like be someone that people want to be around at the end of a 10 out of 12. And that will get you more work as much as your work being good. You should have both of those things. <laughs> but uh, it takes nothing to be someone that people want to be around. Amazing. All right. Final, final couple questions here. What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts like you from people that never give it a try or maybe do it for a while and then go off to something else? I think you're able to put up with more bull. I can put up with a lot of bull, especially on Broadway. There's so much that's thrown at you and you just have to keep going. And I understand people leaving. It's hard and it, is, it will kill your spirit. This isn't not-for-profit. We're doing art together. This is like a business and stakes are high. And when, when people leave, I'm like, I bet their life's going to be so nice. <laughs> I'll be like, oh my gosh, they're going to go out to get, be able to do all those things. Like it's hard. Like if you, if you can't handle it, I understand. I often feel like I can't handle it. Truly. Ask my husband. You should, you should interview him next. <laughs> like having, yeah. I, I think uh, um, a lot of relationships have both people in the business. And I couldn't live that way. And uh, especially in like during the pandemic, Brandon has such a normal work schedule um, that's very steady and living with my crazy. He's kind of like the, the rudder. Amazing. I absolutely love this. Oh, wait, one last question. Where can people connect with you if you want them to? I don't want you to. <laughs> Fair. I don't have an Instagram account. I'm not on the Twitter. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'm not on the Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but you do have a TikTok. What is that again? I do not have a TikTok. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, Bust, um, I have never talked this thoroughly with a prop supervisor. Actually, I've never talked with a prop supervisor ever. I'm glad to be your first. Well, other than like maybe at work or something. But thank you so much. I, I had a, a blast and I learned a lot too. So thank you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. My takeaways are keep your overhead low. That was something John Lee Beatty mentioned on episode 32, maintaining low overhead. With more income, you can have more freedom, but if the overhead is low, the ups and downs of income are less worrisome. Life insurance. For a small price, you can get a large peace of mind. Bust uses accountant Don Robinson. I've put a link in the show notes to Don's rate sheet for any New York City-based folks who may be searching for an accountant. I don't know how up-to-date the rate sheet is, but in January 2022, it listed individual returns starting at $500 and partnership and LLC filings at $800. If you want to do props in New York City, do props in New York City. That's great advice for everyone. If you want to do something, do it. But specifically, the intricacies of props management, do it in the place that you want to be doing it. Bust mentions he fills up his IRAs at tax time. Now, I'm always promoting a Roth IRA as the very first retirement and investment account to open because it gives the best tax benefits, but there are restrictions to Roth IRAs. 
First thing first, it has to be earned income. So if you don't have a job or money coming in from work, you can't contribute to a Roth. There are no age restrictions. Adults can open custodial Roth IRAs for children. The contributions just have to be earned money from the child's work. If you make $129,000 or more annually, you start being phased out. You become completely ineligible at $144,000 annual income. For joint filers, that phase out starts at $204,000 and ends at $214,000. If you do have a Roth, your yearly contribution limit is $6,000. If you're 50 or older, you can contribute $7,000. You can have a traditional IRA at the same time, but you can only put $6,000 in between the two accounts. I see no need for a traditional IRA if you have a Roth IRA, but if you're being phased out of the Roth, I can see you having both accounts. And of course, the beauty of the Roth is that while you don't deduct contributions today, when you pull money out later in retirement, you pay no taxes. If you're not a freelancer or not self-employed and you have access to an employer 401k, there is an option for a Roth 401k that offers similar tax benefits. Not every company has one, but you can look at what your company offers or ask, and even when companies do have it, they tend to put people in traditional 401ks first, but you can ask about it, and if it's available, think about opening up a Roth 401k instead of a traditional 401k. When Bust mentioned not wanting a mortgage or a home as another thing to worry about, that was profound. I went and found an article on wallethacks.com that's from a few months ago, and it showed that the medium net worth in the USA is $104,000. And if you took away home equity, the net worth drops to $34,000, which means that most people have 66% of their savings in equity, which means it's not readily accessible which makes a home a forced savings vehicle. This statistic isn't really new or changed from previous years, but this is where the perception that people who don't own homes have no savings or nest egg to fall back on because they're completely responsible for socking money away because they have no financial institution that's making them set money aside each month. But mortgage or no mortgage, that depends on each person's situation. Buist mentioned he'd rather have the time and money be put to use experiencing things with the limited time he has. I relate to that because Nicole and I feel the very same way. We're definitely open to owning a home, but in New York City, renting is what we're choosing to do. Also, it makes sense because Buist is a low overhead kind of person and is content living in a small, well-located apartment. Another reason I mentioned the mortgage is to point out that net worth minus a mortgage is 66% less than what you think your net worth is. Now, this only matters when you get to investing in what I call professional investments, offerings that require you to be an accredited investor. Now, if you want to invest in something with family and friends, there are no rules. If you remember lighting designer Ebony Madry and I have the joke that we want to open a Duncan franchise, we can do that if we come up with the money. We're friends and we can go into business together on pretty much anything. However, if you are listening to this and you aren't our friend, but you want to invest in that Duncan through a professional offering, you would need to be accredited. Same thing for investing in a startup or, let's say, a Broadway show. Even to invest the minimum of $25,000 into a Broadway show, you have to be an accredited investor, and you have to sign documents that say you're accredited. So what is an accredited investor? 
That is somebody who makes $200,000 a year for two years in a row and has a reasonable expectation for making that for a third year. That bumps up to $300,000 a year for two people filing taxes jointly. Or there's another way you can be an accredited investor, and that is if you have a net worth of $1 million excluding your primary residence. So let's say you haven't made $200,000 a year, so you're looking to your net worth. If you have $900,000 in savings, investments, and retirement accounts, and live in a paid-off property worth $100,000, together that equals $1 million. However, you can't count the property, so you're not accredited. Same situation, if you have $900,000 in savings, etc., you're renting an apartment so you don't have home equity, but you own a rental property worth $100,000, combined that equals $1 million. Because you can count that $100,000 in an investment property, but you can't count it if it's your primary residence. Now, of course, I'm a lighting designer and not a financial professional. There are ways sophisticated investors who aren't accredited can invest in Broadway and other things. That's for the very savvy investor. All this to say there is no right or wrong to a mortgage. It's a great savings vehicle, but it can also be limiting. And as Rebecca Selko, the financial coach for the Actors Fund, will be saying on a future episode, any debt, including the good debt of a mortgage, can become bad debt at any moment. Okay, so now we know more about Roth IRAs and Broadway investing than we ever knew we wanted to know. So my last thought on Bust is that he is an iconic, work-hard Broadway type. Yes, he's as financially secure as any Broadway worker, but that comes from extreme dedication, hard work, and professional demeanor. I admire Bust immensely, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to sit down with him. What do you think of Bust and our conversation? What were the highlights for you, and what would you like to know of the next prop supervisor I interview? Let me know by commenting on LinkedIn, or email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com. A shout out to our patron, Carl. Carl reached out and mentioned that he liked the interview format from early episodes that focused on personal finances. Everybody can thank Carl as we sit down with more individual artists this year. Coming up, we have lighting designer Lap Chi Chu and Broadway director Stafford Arima. So thank you, Carl. And side note question here, what comes to mind when you hear the name Carl? For me, it's Frank and Carl, the rhinos from the movie Ice Age, which is now a dated reference as that film came out 20 years ago. If you want to be a rhino patron or whatever word association I'll come up with your name, I would be more than grateful for you to become a patron. You'll have access to outtakes, which Bust has just one tiny little minute of outtakes, and you'll always get early releases of the episodes. Tiers start at $3 a month. You can cancel anytime. To join up, visit patreon.com slash artisticfinance. As always, if you aren't ready to become a patron, the outtakes are always available for free if you email artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and ask me for them. I'm not trying to keep anything secret. I just want to provide bonus materials for the patrons who are taking the action of validating Artistic Finance's mission of encouraging honest financial talk amongst artists. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. 
make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.